you have your Bibles and you want to find Genesis chapter 37, we're continuing this series on the life of Jacob. But first I want to quote something. With God's help, I will do my best to serve God, my church, and my fellow men, to live by the Ranger Code, and to make the Golden Rule my daily rule. Yeah, a few of you know what that is. I knew that James would, I know that Keith would. Ranger code? What's the Ranger code? <clears throat> okay, let me try it. Alert, clean, honest, courageous, loyal, courteous, obedient, and spiritual. The Royal Ranger is alert. He's mentally, physically, and spiritually alert. He's clean, clean in body, mind, and speech. He's honest. He doesn't lie, cheat, or steal. He's courageous and brave in spite of danger, criticism, or threats. He's loyal. He is faithful to his church, family, outposts, and friends. He's courteous. He's polite, kind, and thoughtful. He is obedient. He obeys his parents, leaders, and those in authority. And he spiritually prays or reads the Bibles and witnesses. Now, I was, the Royal Ranger program started in 1962. So in the 60s, I was a Royal Ranger. I was the patrol guide in outpost number 19 in Vista, California. This is Royal Ranger Day at Disneyland, which we went every year when we were kids. And I wore the uniform proudly. You know, we did all the we close order drills. We learned how to present the colors and all that kind of stuff. And, and you might think, well, Randy, that's pretty hokey. And I look back on it now, it probably was. But you know what? I learned stuff. And I learned really important stuff. And I was just thinking this week, do I remember that stuff? And I'm afraid I do. So I have to ask myself, why? Why would I remember that stuff? Well, it's It's ritual. It's the power of ritual, and that's what we're talking about today. Now, in today's passage in Genesis 37, beginning there, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture. Because of a series of crises in his life, Jacob is in absolute despair. This is where he had received word from his sons that his favorite son, Joseph, had been killed by wild animals. And, and what Jacob says here, or certainly what Jacob feels is what I've encountered in the lives of parents of many teenagers. It says, Genesis 37, 34, Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I'll continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Now, let me give you some context Last week we talked about the moment where Jacob had an encounter with God and, and, and God met with him on Peniel and changed his name and Jacob wrestled with God. By the time that happened, Jacob's sons were pretty much all grown. His youngest son, Joseph, was six years old at the time and they had watched their father all their lives scheme and strive and hustle to, for the blessing that God had already given him. So here's my question today. How do you think that marked them? How do you think their father's life affected them? Few parents intentionally set their children down and disciple them. Way too few parents teach their children about the parts of the Bible and how to study the Bible. Way too few Christian parents coach their kids in how to worship, how to respond to the presence of God. Way too few Christian parents prepare their children for the inevitable seasons of doubt they're going to go through. But every parent intends to. 
Every one of us would say it's a very high priority, but we never seem to make time for it. But what I'm telling you is just because you don't sit them down and disciple them intentionally, you're still teaching them. Whether you like it or not, it's inevitable. And speaking of good intentions, when that baby is born, we set out fully committed to being good examples, and we fully fail. Why? Because we're fully human, and there's nothing we can do about that. Looking back at Jacob last week in Genesis chapter 33 when he had this life-changing encounter with God where God changed his name and wrenched his hip. And then Jacob went and reconciled with his brother Esau. The Bible says that he settled in Sukkoth near a city called Shechem. And, and Shechem was an evil place. In fact, the, the governor's son, who's also named Shechem, they think he's named after the city, saw Dinah. Dinah is Jacob's daughter by Leah, and he, this, this boy Shechem decided he had to have Dinah. So he assaulted her sexually and then demanded that his father go get Dinah for a wife. Well, when Jacob's other sons heard about what had been done to their sister, they were incensed, and they hatched a scheme. Does that sound familiar? I wonder where they learned that. So they went and told Shechem and his father that, that they would partner with them but there was one proviso. All the men of the city had to be circumcised, and the Bible says, just as we are. Well, Shechem and his father loved the idea because Jacob was very wealthy, and they wanted to partner with Jacob. But they sold this plan to the men of the city. Now, I don't know how that happened. I'm thinking these are some great politicians that they could talk the men in the city into this, but they did. And the Bible says that three days later, while the men were laying around groaning and recuperating, Simeon and Levi went through the city of Shechem with swords and killed every man in the city. And then all the rest of Jacob's sons came in and looted the city, stole everything, including the women and children. And this is Jacob's response in Genesis 3430. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've ruined me. You've made me stink among all the people of this land, among all the Canaanites and Perizzites. We're so few that they'll join forces and crush us. I'll be ruined and my entire household will be wiped out. Why should we let him treat our sister like a prostitute, they retorted angrily. In other words, dad, the end justifies the means. We've watched you your whole life. Go after what you wanted, and it didn't matter what you did as long as you ended up getting what you wanted. We learned it from you, Dad. Another sordid story is in Genesis chapter 38 where Judah, who was Jacob's fourth son, had twins in, in a very sketchy manner. And if you want to read kind of an ugly story, go to Genesis 38 and read about that. It's terrible. But the Bible says that the twins struggled with each other in the womb, and Zerah was, was going to be born first. An arm came out, and the midwife tied a scarlet cord around his wrist, but then the wrist went back into the womb, and Perez was actually born first. And the Bible says that those twins struggled with each other their entire lives. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's repeating itself. Here's a little fun fact. Of all of Jacob's 12 sons, 
Jesus was not born in the line of Simeon, who was the firstborn, and Jesus was not born through the line of Joseph, who was the national savior. Joseph, Jesus was born through the line of Judah, who was the fourth son, and he was an absolute scoundrel. I wonder if there's a lesson there for us. And then going on in Genesis chapter 40, the Bible tells us that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Again, does that sound familiar? Favoritism in the house? Just like um, Isaac and Rebekah? Joseph was hated by his older brother so badly that they sold him into slavery. And the Bible tells us that the slave traders that took Joseph to Egypt were Ishmaelites. Anybody remember Ishmael? Ishmael was the born... The boy born to Abraham when Sarah could not conceive, so Sarah gave Abraham Hagar, her, her servant, and Ishmael was born when Abraham and Sarah were trying to help God, trying to sort circuit the promise. So now years later, watch this, the descendants of Ishmael, the sons of Ishmael, are selling Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, who was the covenant carrier of Abraham's promise into slavery? What? Not long ago, I had a conversation with my son and daughter-in-law where they had been at a small group and had a conversation about generational curses. And they were asking me about this passage of Scripture, Numbers chapter 14. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, but it does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. And folks, I'm telling you, this is what's happening in Jacob's family. What, what Numbers is talking about is not genetics, it's example factor. Did you know that children of incarcerated parents are five times more likely than their peers to commit a crime? Do you wonder why that is? Children of alcoholics spend their lives dealing with the trauma from their parents' problems. And it's not just alcohol. It's also um, gamboaholics. It's also rageaholics. It's also workaholics. It's also sexaholics and every other holic you can think of. We're screwing up our kids. Because children carry out the patterns we learn from our parents. This is not God inflicting sin. This is humans modeling human behavior. And whether you like it or not, that little thing growing up in your house is watching you and wants to be like you because he or she loves you and admires you and they're, they're copying you. So parents, we know this, but let me just remind you, what you do is way more powerful than what you say. And if you think my kids are not seeing me, you're kidding yourself. They see you. They know. So I'll just start modeling righteous behavior. Yeah, I know you want to. And I know you intend to. But our humanity keeps bubbling up and leaking out. That's the way this thing goes. But the Bible gives us a remedy. The remedy for this generational problem is sacred rituals. Now, rituals are very common in our culture. We see it everywhere. The dictionary says a ritual is a customary observance or practice. But think about this with me. A recent study out of the University of California at Berkeley said the average adult hears 300 advertisements per day. 
That's 300 different voices telling us how we should act and what we should be and what we should look like and what we should like. I'm very dogmatic about the danger of digital devices. I know you get sick of hearing about it, but just this week, I had a conversation. He, he's got in the habit of getting home and kind of flopping down on the couch and playing games on his phone and looked around and seeing his boys at his feet ignoring him. And he said, I'm playing more time on, with games on my phone than I'm spending with my sons. And he, he, this pagan saw that. What about our children? Did you know that Nike and Instagram and their friends all have a plan for your kid? Do we? Do we have a plan for our children? Now, there's nothing inherently good or bad about rituals. They're nuisance. But what is it that makes a ritual sacred or special? It's the author. And God, as our creator, as our architect, knows what's best for us. If God knows how to take care of a plant, he certainly knows how to take care of his people. So God gives us rituals prescribed in the Bible that are powerful tools to live our lives in victory. For example, the Shema is the, the Israelite prayer, the Jewish prayer that devout Jewish families recite morning and evening, every single day of their lives. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 4, or 6 rather. It goes like this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Ritual. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, confront your children constantly about the goodness of God. Always bombarding them with who God is and what God is about. And every devout Jewish household does this every morning and every evening. Now, Parents here are going, well, that, that sounds good, Randy, but my kids would never go for it. Do you think those 14-year-old Jewish kids aren't rolling their eyes? You think they're not saying, Dad, this is so lame. Do it anyway. Yes, that's good preacher, Randy. You keep going. Okay, I will. Thank you. <laughs> I went to a conference some years ago. Professor Leonard Sweet spoke. He's an academic and theologian. And I bought a copy of his book called From Tablet to Table. And I've quoted from it several times to you. Let me share a couple of facts that just stunned me. The old order Amish keep 95% of their kids in their culture. And this is even refusing to evangelize. And they have one of the most stringent um, forms of religious practice known to mankind. And have you seen the clothing? You think the teenagers like these outfits that the Amish wear? So I'm thinking, how in the world do they keep 95% of their kids? It's because the parents model values rather than just preach values. And their cultural identity is formed around the family table. In fact, family devotions take place at the family table. And, and I'm told that when Amish teenagers go on what they call the runaround, which is actually part of their culture called rumspringa in their, I bet you Angela knows all about this. They're, as teenagers, they're encouraged to go out and taste the world. 
Go see what it's like. And if you want to stay out there, you just stay out there. But if you come back, you're signing up, buddy. This is where you're going to be. Well, the whole time they're gone, mom sets a place at the table every single meal. And most families still put food on it. And the point is, when that kid does come home and find their place set and everything just like it was, what message are they sending? There is no identity in the world stronger than the Jewish identity. You think about it, 0.002% of the world's population is Jewish, yet they're absolute set in the standards in medicine and arts and academia and business. And the Passover Seder is a meal that takes several hours. And it's telling the story of God's deliverance of his people out of Egyptian bondage. And the story is told not by the father, but by the food. And like I say, it takes several hours, and they're prompted several times through this meal. The kids are supposed to ask, Father, what does this mean? And the father explains it, so the kids grow up just as a repetition. Now, a Jewish child becomes an adult at age 13. It's a ceremony called the mitzvah. And they're literally inducted into Jewishness, and they enter the identity that's informed around that Passover table year after year after year. Now, compare that to American Christians. Where's the ceremony for our kids? We just, when they get to be teenagers, we say, go, I hope you go find yourself. Good luck with that. This is why we're talking about sacred rituals. Jesus instituted the ordinance of communion for the church. And he told his disciples in 1 Corinthians 11, every time you eat this bread, ritual, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Identity. See, it connects the two there. And what I want to talk to you about, just for a minute, I'm almost done. Stay with me. While it's super important to have sacred rituals in the family, God also gives us sacred rituals in our fellowships. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I saw a lot of parents that abdicated their responsibility to disciple their kid, and they brought the kid to the church to be discipled. Now, thank God for Sunday school teachers, and thank God for godly youth pastors and kids pastors. That's, that's so good. But discipling kids is not the church's job. It's the parents' job. Now, should the church be involved? Absolutely. But what can the church do? What should the church do? I grew up in the age of flannel graph in Sunday school. And if you don't know what a flannel graph is, turn to somebody there with gray hair around you, and they'll tell you. Flannel graph. A lot of people are having whiplash memories right now. Oh! We did not have trained teachers. We certainly did not have video. And we were bored out of our minds. But we learned the stories, didn't we? We learned the great stories of the Bible. How is it possible that after more than 50 years of even thinking about it, I can still recite that Royal Ranger stuff? That's the power of ritual. That's what I'm talking about. And we talked about walking through this merger process. One of the things that Brian, who's the pastor of Genesis, and I have been kind of wrestling about is that every Sunday at Genesis Church, they recite the Apostles' Creed. We don't. If you don't know, the Apostles' Creed originated in the 4th century A.D., and it's 12 kind of statements 
or 12 themes that encapsulate the Christian faith. And of course, in the fourth century, most Christians did not know how to read. So the church collectively came up with this method by which they could recite this and learn this and memorize this and walk out into the mission field with the same mindset, which if you think about it, it's a pretty good argument. And now it's been recited by Christians for almost 2,000 years. Here's my problem. Any observance that's done over and over without being tied closely to meaning kind of gets stale and loses its zest. Like, for example, I'm sure we could all stand this morning and recite the Pledge of Allegiance, but when was the last time you thought deeply about what you're saying? But I think it's a good idea. This is what Brian is saying, that we send people out on Sunday with the same mission, under the same mandate, with the same set of beliefs. We need to get on the same page and remind ourselves about the timelessness of our beliefs. And I think that's really good. That's a great argument. Well, by the same token, we are called to disciple our children. What are we doing about that? What's our plan about that? And I'm so grateful to Jana and the monthly family verse of the month. But are we taking our responsibility seriously as a church? Now, some people would say, well, it's too late for me. My kids are grown and gone. Oh, that's so misguided. In fact, if you think that's, that's not your place, that I should be fired as your pastor if I don't confront that because that's bad thinking. Let me tell you what I mean. We have a room full of seasoned saints. I'm saying that as lovingly and gently as I can. And I'm talking about there's so much wisdom and experience in this room. They've got all these young new Christians that are blank slates. They're sponges ready to soak up. So our job is to connect the two. Brian and I are also talking a lot about multi-generational ministry. We would be fools if we didn't leverage the experience and the wisdom in this room for these new young Christians that are coming out. And we're trying to figure out good ways to do that. But you need to be ready to step up. I said you need to be ready to step up. Can I get the worship team please to come back again? I want to do Firm Foundation again in just a minute. I'm going to talk about 20 or 30 more minutes, and then I'm going to do Firm Foundation. <laughs> Last week, JC and I got to spend a few minutes with our granddaughter, Emma's 14, and um, it seems that she has developed an appetite for reading, and that does not break my heart. And in fact, sometimes, I've, I've even shared some books with her that she enjoys. Very cool. But last Saturday, she told us about a book that she's been reading that's obviously a teen kind of focused book, and I don't know the title or the author, and I'm going to get, get it wrong. But she said, basically, it's a story about this girl, this like high schooler, who's a podcaster, and the boy that she likes, that she's kind of in relationship with, I don't know what the teenager is, I'm not sure the rules about that yet, but this boy that she likes is, is trying to kind of undermine her and sabotage everything she's doing in the podcast. But there's another boy over here. He's obviously good in the story because he's coming and trying to help her. And my granddaughter said this, I hope she falls in love with him and I bit my lip to keep from correcting her. Because what I want to say is, honey, falling in love is a myth. 
This is a Hollywood construct that every movie and every song and every book is written about. It's a made-up thing. You don't fall in love. It's a commitment that you give your life to. You can, maybe you need to guard your heart. But I didn't say that. You'd be proud of me. I don't want to ruin her childhood. But I want to protect her. And this is what I want you to understand. Faith is a lot like love. When my granddaughter said, I hope he falls in love with her, she was saying, I hope he gets swept away to the point where he commits himself. I hope he gets so overwhelmed that he gives his life to her. And at 14 years old, my granddaughter's aware that we're never in control of love. We admit that this is something bigger than we are, and, and this is something that has the power to control us. Well, I'm telling you, faith is like that as well. Nobody ever falls in faith. And when we start this faith journey, we don't know how it's going to end. At the beginning, we kind of, oh, that's a good idea, and we start the journey without really considering the cost. And then somewhere along the way, we start realizing I want to give my life to this or not. At some point, we come to the place where I am so overwhelmed by this idea of faith that I'm going to turn my back on everything else in order to have this blessing or not. Because a lot of people start on the faith journey and flake out. They don't make it. And you can leave the faith anytime you want because faith is something else that's beyond human control. It's not something we can handle. And that's what we learned from Jacob. The basis of our faith is not us, it's God. That's the basis. The psalmist said it this way in Psalms 119. Your faithfulness extends to every generation as enduring as the earth you created. Now, Jacob was an absolute scoundrel. He spent his entire life hustling, pursuing a blessing that he already had. And Jacob's issue was he did not trust God's promise at face value. Jacob thought he had to put his hands on it. He had to make it his, and he messed everything up. He could not bring himself to rest in God's faithfulness. Now, thankfully, we've read the end of the story and we know that it all works out okay for Jacob. And so many other of our Bible heroes, they were, they were dumpster fires. But because they ultimately put their trust and their faith in God, it worked out okay. And we have sacred rituals that remind us over and over, your faithfulness extends to every generation as enduring as the earth you created. I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in this song again.